This is a Federal News Network podcast. For various reasons, defense contractors have quite a bit of Defense Department property in their possession. But DOD can only guesstimate how much it's all worth. And the figure isn't small, like $220 billion worth. The Government Accountability Office finds defense officials don't have a good plan for figuring it out. For more, we turn to the director of GAO's Financial Management and Assurance Team, Kristen Koselek. Ms. Koselek, good to have you on. Thanks for having me. And let's begin with the nature of the stuff that contractors hold for the Defense Department. It's not like they loan them tanks. They have lots of different types of assets, actually. So as most folks probably know, the government does do quite a bit of contracting at the Department of Defense for for various types of property and and assets and things. Um, So it's very common that contractors hold assets for the government. So as part of the contracting, the government can acquire assets, but they're really kept in the possession of contractors who are working on various government contracts for building assets for the government. And so as part of that, it's very common that the contractors are holding these assets. That's not uncommon at all, not in any way improper. But the issue has been that the government, exactly like you said, doesn't have a good handle on the full list of assets that the contractors have, the full value. And so maintaining accountability over those assets, you know, is problematic because they just don't have a handle on what they are attempting to maintain accountability over. It sounds like it might be more of an internal integration problem. Like I'm thinking, suppose the Navy is having a ship built. Well, that ship is in the possession of the shipbuilder until such time as it's delivered to the Navy. And so the Navy could tell you, yeah, we have three submarines and five ships and here's where they are, but it doesn't all add up at the departmental level? That's correct. That's exactly what we found. So the contractor is maintaining you know, lists of the assets that they have, but the problem is the, the government is really dependent on those lists. They're not really great at keeping their own independent records to verify that information. And so when when we're coming in to get to take a look and attempt to understand the nature of those assets and understand how the department is financially reporting those assets and maintaining accountability. Like you said, you know, it's really important for the government to understand what assets it has, where they are, so that they can remain ready to fulfill their mission. If they don't have a good handle on where things are, they could be buying more things that they don't actually need. Um, They could think they have an asset at a position, but they actually don't. And so everybody being on the same page about where all of these assets are all of the time is really critical. And you also report, too, that it ultimately adds up to, it's a component anyway, in the DOD's inability to get a clean financial statement, the last department to hold out in this whole thing. Absolutely. And so, you know, that's certainly one of the big issues that um, has caused this particular issue to come to light. There are, you know, numerous material weaknesses that are preventing the department from having auditable financial statements, um, but there are many related to their accountability of assets and inability to properly reflect on the financial statements, the full and complete list of assets that it has. And so this has been, you know, a particularly tricky issue for the department to get its arms around and correct. As you know, you know, I think they've been working on it for, you know, for well over 20 years now. Um, It is complicated. The department is huge. There are many contractors at play. They struggle with having good automated systems to help them in doing this. So to try to do this manually, which they have been trying to do, you know, is a massive undertaking. So in no way is something simple or easy to fix, but is really important for them to be able to get their arms around. 
they really sound like a library that doesn't know who has their books. Yes, that's a great analogy for describing this situation. We're speaking with Kirsten Kosalek. She is director of the Financial Management and Assurance Team at the Government Accountability Office. And they were directed, DOD was directed a couple of years ago, about three years ago, to get its arms around this. There was a memorandum generated within the department. And interesting, you said one of the problems with that being carried out is it wasn't distributed properly. Did they tape it on every door? Did they or put it in the cafeteria? Or what, what, what happened there? Yeah, so really they, ha- they were instructing folks to attempt to create a baseline of these assets. And, and to do that, they were instructing the various components and departments to submit various information to um, the department overall. And they did have a lot of trouble with the memorandum getting into the right hand. So it was distributed to the various um, secretaries of the department, but not specifically addressed to the folks who were actually going to be responsible for carrying this out. And obviously, the services and various components are very large. And so not properly addressing it quickly to the right folks created some concern. And they, they acknowledged that, that, you know, making sure they have the correct POC so this information can get to who it needs to go is really critical to being able to be successful in this. If a memo falls in the Pentagon, does it really make a noise? I guess is the question there. Lots of bad analogies on this one. And let's go over your main recommendations because you had three, but they're they're big ones. They are. Yeah. So the first is really getting their arms around how they go about issuing memorandums. So they have a history of trying to resolve these things through these these types of memorandums. And so to the extent they're going to continue down that path, you know, like you said, making sure the memorandums are being addressed to who they need to go to, they're getting into the right hands, but also that they are reaching out to these point of contacts while they are distributing the memos or while they are developing the memos rather before they are issued. Because we also found some challenges with just the logistics of what the components were being instructed to do. You know, the timeframes were really unrealistic. They really didn't have availability to get some of the information that was being requested. So to the extent that the people who are going to carry out these memos are involved in the process of distributing them, they would have a much higher likelihood of success because the the requests are going to be reasonable. The other issue that we found was a lack of oversight for these initiatives. And so we did recommend that to the extent they are assigning these oversight boards, and in this case, they had assigned the property functional council, that there's really some direction to these councils, um, some expectations that are set up through a charter or other mechanisms for establishing meeting frequency, making sure the right people are at these meetings to do proper oversight, to make sure these memorandums are being followed to the extent they're not, that there's some you know, communication back and forth with the responsible parties, you know, to understand what challenges are being faced so that these memos going forward have a chance of being successful and someone's overseeing that, that the memo just like right. you said, doesn't, doesn't fly into the component's office just to be forgotten and, and never followed up on. And this is a never ending process because it's constantly shifting level of material that is in contractors' hands, probably by the Absolutely. day, certainly by the year. Absolutely. And so, right, having having readily available information and, and, you know, proper mechanisms to be able to track it is really critical. And then our third recommendation related to really taking a step back and understanding what kind of strategy do they have in place for this. <clears throat> Over the years, they've, like you said, issued numerous memorandums and, you know, really have been unsuccessful in um, 
making really any sufficient progress to resolve this. And so our third recommendation is really for them to develop an overarching strategy that's going to look at really what are the root causes here and, and put some things in place to address the fundamental root causes, set up some realistic timeframes and, and have plans to go back and reassess what's working, what's not, so that you can make pivots as needed to, to be successful in this area. And fair to say, if they were to get around this one, then they would eliminate one of their principal material weaknesses towards a good financial audit? That would be the hope, yes. Kirsten Koselek is Director of the Financial Management and Assurance Team at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe to the podcast version wherever you get your shows. Leadership Today especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and 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 physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in direct care, and and I will say, and on a, obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, pr- profound disabilities are are really um, you know we we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they're they're really heroes, and um, so I was I was drawn when I I and I just saw that you know Special Olympics was looking for someone, and I thought, well, you know, I'll take a look at it and see, see you know, throw, uh, send in my information, and lo and behold, I I, I get hired, and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from, especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington D.C. and you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries. Uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by always happy, always enthused, uh, has a, has a good story. Like it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, so often when he'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is, you know, stressing me out. And come on, you know, like look at look at Terrell. Like he, he he faces everything with optimism, and 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 I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally. You see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents when they were born were often told this is a tragedy, and you should you should 
you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the state or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands of it. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from, from their last competition. And they're so committed and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from the athletes of Special Olympics that, uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give uh, working with Special Olympics. It, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do. But but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so. Uh, joyful and and uh, i mean we work hard and you know we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at special olympics no one's excluded you know no, right. no one's excluded everyone yeah. is equal at special olympics it, and you know in a country that's quite divided on so many lines politically and uh, socially uh, economically race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experienced the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier. Um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think when you, when you go back to the founding uh, of our organization what mrs Tri mrs shriver was trying to do uh was to to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities and you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together we still have traditional uh teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams all intellectual disabilities but this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot i think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh others with intellectual disabilities that's just like i mean that's what we 
that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences. And that our athletes, man, are some of the greatest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website. Uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.